How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop. And their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. This week on the Backtable Podcast. Too many trainees get hung up on looking, when you're looking and evaluating a group, I think too many get hung up on, well, what are they currently doing there? You know, like, oh, I, I went to see them. Well, or, mm-hmm. how many legs are they doing? Are they doing Y90? Yeah. Are they not? You know, and, and I understand why people look at, look at things that way. But I think if you're the type of person and you think you want to go out and grow, you know, with a group and grow a practice like this, whether it be PAD or IO uh, or both, I think the real thing that you should be looking at is the group's mentality, the leadership, you know, the equality structure, how decisions are made, their history of aggressive expansion or not. I think those are the biggest things as a trainee coming out that you want to look at if this is some direction you want to go, uh, because I'm eternally grateful for my group and their support. Um, and I think it's just because I found my, I chose the right practice to do this in. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Boston Scientific can help you advance, connect, and equip your practice with NextLab. NextLab is a suite of solutions and partnerships tailored to meet the needs of your OBL or cardiovascular ASC. NextLab goes beyond Boston Scientific's medical devices to provide ways to reduce expenses and increase efficiencies in your business so you can focus on patient care. Whether you have an established lab or are thinking about opening one, Boston Scientific can help. Visit bostonscientific.com slash nextlab. Now, back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And our topic for today is creating an OBL within a DRIR group. My guests today are Dr. Don Garbett, interventional radiologist practicing in Eugene, Oregon, and Dr. Nick Petruzzi, Director of the Vascular Institute in New Jersey. Don and Nick, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, I'm so glad that I met both of you in my journey because you both have really interesting stories about developing an IROBL within your IRDR group. So could each of you give me a little bit of background about the group that you work at? Don, I'm going to start with you. Thanks, Ellie. So I'm in a, a group of about 20 radiologists, and, and six of them are IR. I came from a group in Texas where we didn't have, you know, like a full, we were just hospitalist IRs. So I was pretty excited to join the group. Um, and I was always sort of, I always wanted to have our own outpatient center. And so I spent about two years, I spent about two years thinking about it yeah. and just doing stuff. Um, but within our group... You know, I think we're very business minded, the whole group. We have a few MBAs. So that 
helps to have people in that mindset within the group. And we're, we're in Eugene, Oregon. We're about maybe 250,000 people for our catchment area. What else? It's a mostly private practice environment out here. So, you know, everybody we work with, almost, almost everybody we work with is private practice, um, besides cardiology, who is all hospital employed in town. Okay. Is it a, a single hospital that you guys work at or multiple hospitals? Oh, good question. Yeah. So we have, we do, we, we do IR at two hospitals. One's about 400 beds and one's about 100 beds. And uh, we do diagnostic for many other areas in a far catchment area. Um, Nick, could you tell me a little bit about your group? Sure. We're based in, as you said, uh, southeastern New Jersey, private practice group. I joined them about eight years ago. I came in as the fourth IR to the team, the larger group of about, I think back then we had about 40, mid-40s, 40-something radiologists. Again, I was the uh, the fourth IR. Uh, We provide diagnostics. It was your first group out of of fellowship, right? Yes. Yeah, I came directly. Was your first practice out of fellowship for you? Yep. Yep. Came directly out of uh, of fellowship. Kind of knew I wanted to head into private practice, and I I saw some good potential uh, with this group and also location fit. Um, so I, I came there. When, you know, when I joined originally, really no OBL. I was, there was no OBL and really no uh, IR clinic uh, presence to speak of. Um, we had uh, the group has twelve. Well, had twelve uh, outpatient imaging centers uh, at that time, and uh, we cover uh, basically two hospital campuses, each about three hundred to four hundred beds uh, at each uh, location. So, how did each of you get interested in the idea of starting an OBL? Did you meet a mentor or did something spark your interest? Don, let's start with you. When I was working in Texas, uh, I, I went to interview with the Hamilton Vein Center, which they had at the time, I think they had like six or between six and 10 centers. And uh, got to chat with a couple IRs working at the different centers. You know, at the time I was just considering, do I want to do what I was doing currently, like the, the hospitalist thing? Or did I want to have an outpatient clinic because we didn't have one? And then just seeing that gig, I was, I was very interested in the model. I hadn't really, you know, at the time, I think it was 20, it must've been 2015. So I didn't have a lot of perspective on it and didn't really know much about it, but just seeing the model, I was very interested. I liked the idea of being able to follow the patients. I had patients in the hospital who were like, how do I follow up with you? And I can't, <laughs> I would say I can't. But what we could do is get a CT scan and I'll see you when you have your CT scan. It's terrible. <laughs> That's where it grew from, I think. <laughs> wow, I, I love that. Every single IR doctor I know has kind of gone above and beyond to try and see their patients like at some point in some clinical setting, even if it's not in a clinic, um, if they really want to build it. Mm-hmm. And yours was just when they came in for their diagnostic imaging. That's awesome. Oh, and I got yelled at. Oh, you got yelled uh, at. You got in I trouble. I got yelled at. I actually got in trouble with administration in Texas. I saw the patient. We had just done like a SFA, a whole total SFA recan, three vessel restoration. And, you know, people had told him he was getting an amputation, the whole thing. So it was like the whole rescue thing. Yeah. And he was super grateful. And my prior doctor wasn't taking care of me. We did the whole thing. So I had like a CTA runoff or something. I don't know what he had, uh, like a couple months later. And I saw him. And then the COO of the hospital... Uh, went and found me shortly after that visit and told me that can never happen again. This is not a clinic. You are not running a clinic. If you would like a clinic, you can rent a space. So that I was like, holy cow. And honestly, that moment 
was a I was angry and I was like how do I fix this and and yeah. that kind of and then I started to hear about people like Michael Cumming and uh, uh, Jerry in Florida and I think Nick did you even have your center open by then in 2015 uh, that was when we that was right when we had just initially opened it you know Interesting. Yeah, early okay. 2015. So yeah, I think the the thought was spreading around the country, but that's that's where I came from, I guess. My initial frustration. Okay, Nick. Nick, tell us about your aha moment of when you wanted to start a clinic. Yeah, so it I, it's not that dissimilar to Don's. Actually, I think it was uh, also born out of uh, frustration a little bit um, with the sort of hospital practice. But when I came to my group uh, originally, I didn't have these big plans to open an OBL uh, or really head that direction. I just wanted to have a clinic and provide sort of good longitudinal care of PAD, CLI patients. Um, so that was really my main focus. Uh, when I first came, I started my clinic, which was sort of half IO and half a PAD kind of focused. Um, and in PAD, sort of a special interest in CLI. But I was bringing those cases just like the IO cases um, to the hospital, to, you know, to perform um, the angiograms there. And I learned pretty quickly when I, I came right out of fellowship, and I learned pretty quickly that they didn't have a fully stocked lab, you know, at, at all for these types of, you know, BTK, you know, interventions and such. We had some iliac stents and, you know, maybe some occasional things for SFA, but really nothing you would need, you know, for below the knee, you know, CLI type work. And so, I, I started trying to stock them up, you know, to get the equipment that I, you know, that I needed. And, and I remember um, there was one, it was actually my first like specific request. Um, I said, we probably should have CO2. I mean, we didn't have CO2. So I'm like, you know, yeah. I hear a lot of these patients have CKD. Like maybe we should get some <laughs> CO2. So, um, and they're like, well, what's that? I don't, I, you know, so, yeah. you know, I think mm -hmm. the, uh, CO2 mander or the commander, I don't know how you're supposed to yeah. say it, but yes, that had, I call um, it the CO2 mander also, CO2 but I, mander. I also don't know how, how do you say it, Don? Do you call it the commander? I don't have it. <laughs> you don't have it? That's oh, great. You got to get it. <laughs> yeah. This is, this episode anyway. is not sponsored by the CO2 mander. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so I said, oh, this is really handy because, you know, I didn't know much about the big tanks and stuff. And so I, I found this had just come out. So, and it's fairly cheap, you know, I didn't think the cost was that prohibitive to it when I looked into it. So I, I asked the hospital, can we get this? Because I need to be able to, you know, perform CO2 angiography. And they're like, well, you got to go to the value analysis committee. So that was my first, <laughs> you know, experience with the, uh, the, the VAC, the value analysis um, committee. And they said, well, you got to bring all the data, um, you know, your, your articles and whatever you, you need, you know, uh, to support, you know, the equipment um, you know, that you're requesting. So I show up, you know, I'm all organized. I've got my articles from, you know, 1972 showing that, you know, <laughs> CO2 is, is, uh, is uh, you know, a good thing, you know, in contrast, nephropathy and all these things. And I'm sitting around the table. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday and I'm sitting around this boardroom uh, table. And, and I'm speaking, you know, I'm speaking to a bunch of sort of glazed over looks uh, at me while I'm, while I'm uh, going through, you know, the rationale for CO2 angiography. And I realized I'm the only physician in the room. I, wow. I was, yeah. I was the only one, you know, uh, uh, with a medical degree, you know, a physician's degree in the room. Um, it was mainly nurses and there were some, um, couple of maybe, um, 
managers, you know, with, with probably, you know, like, like uh, radiologic tech backgrounds and, and things like that. I didn't think much of it. Honestly, I'm thinking, all right, well, this is fine. I'll finish my, uh, my presentation. You know, I'm not sure how much they're following the specifics of what I'm saying, but that's okay. You know, uh, it, it'll be put, you know, it'll be put through and it'll you be kinda, fine. You kind of thought it was just like a hurdle to jump through that you yeah, present. Yeah, it was like a formality. Okay. Yeah, right, right. So I go through the whole thing and finish and I'm like, all right, that's done. And then the next day I get a, an email, uh, it was denied. So what? <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> uh, Okay. Yeah. And so literally that was like a Friday. Mm-hmm. And then that weekend, you know, I'm, I started putting together uh, a pro forma and I, I said, you that. know, nice. I, I, I think, cause at this point I, you know, I had, I had a, a cohort of patients, you know, monthly averages that I'm bringing there. So I had, you know, kind of the, kind of the, the patient base that I knew could translate. So I, I started that weekend, I started working uh, on my performa, and I never after then I was I was all in. Uh, on, oh on my god, OBL I love that. So in out. both situations, administrators pissed you guys off enough that you were like, "We're doing it." I love that. That's amazing, Don. You've shared stories with me about your interactions with your hospital value added committee or whatever the whatever you call it in Oregon. Yeah. Um. And yeah, it's so frustrating trying to explain stuff to non doctors, right? You know, I've had at least four presentations for the VAC, uh, AngioVAC. Rotorex and some radial stuff. And every time, uh, you know, you submit stuff and you just expect that they're going to understand like that you need this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing how they just turn it down. And and then it Absolutely. turns into, you know, I have to do how much work while I'm on vacation to get this stuff into the center where I, where I'm just trying to take care of the patients with, you know, the, the best yeah. tools. You know, if you're like a mechanic and you need a hammer, you just buy a hammer. <laughs> oh, my hammer went bad, or there's a better hammer. I'm going to get the better hammer so I don't hit my hand. But the hospital makes it so difficult. Yeah, I, even with pricing, uh, like you know, I try to help. Yeah. I, I, I with with help out. You know, hey, we can probably do better on mm-hmm. these things. You know, we have some vendor relationships and such. They don't. No, 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 no. Don't we yeah. will handle the the price. Oh, we'll pay full price. Um, don't worry. We'll pay the highest yeah. price possible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We don't want free I stuff. I love hospitals. We don't want free stuff. Are they going to give you that for free? No. No, no, no. We'll, we'll buy it. <laughs> okay. So that, that was kind of like the initial spark that got you on. So I imagine that the next step was convincing the people around you that it was a good idea. So you guys got to teach mm. me how you did that. Don, let's start with you. Yeah. So this was, this was kind of awesome. Things just kind of lined up perfectly. So I'd been working on it for like two years in the background. I was looking at real estate. I was writing up my pro forma, which I have no business experience prior. So like teaching myself to write a pro forma, I'm sure Nick, you had to learn it too. And then I knew at some point I was going to have to like have a sit down like Jerry Maguire, sit down in a living room and get these guys, you know, be king of the living room. And (laughs) so like just fortuitously, one of the guys in my group said, let's have a vision meeting, right? Like what? Who has a vision meeting in the radiologist group? Nobody cares. Coming from Oregon, like, did that occur in a forest, like in a drum circle, <laughs> like around a campfire? Or was that just in a plain old conference room? How do you I guys do your Peyote vision meetings? Oh, I knew Peyote, Peyote was coming. At the meeting? I knew that was coming. <laughs> nice, Nick. <laughs> you would think. No, so we rented a hotel for, like for the day. And we had like our own conference, like our own conference on a Saturday. We all came in and they're like our, our practice coordinator catered we had catered food and there was coffee and 
It was like a whole day just budgeted. Our families knew we were going to be gone for the day. And the whole idea was like, where do we want to be in 10 years? So I had about a month's notice. So I wrote up a PowerPoint and I just, I did, you know, I put in my pro formas. I had already found all the real estate options and I had renting versus buying and how much it will cost either way. Um, I had actual locations where we could put our center. You know, I came at it from multiple standpoints. I came at it from difficulties in the hospital, better care for patients, better ability to, to control our own lives as far as like overnight call and, you know, not having to take care of outpatients at 10 PM because the inpatients you still have to do. And I just, I hit it from so many angles when, when we finished the PowerPoint and there was a presentation before mine, you don't need to go into it. It was interesting, but after my presentation, it was a, I mean, all of them just said, okay, when can we do this? Wow. Yeah. Nice. There's immediate buy-in from your group. Wow. Immediate. That's awesome. Well, you know, I mean, that was the philosophical buy-in, but mm-hmm. there was definitely the financial buy-in was a whole next step. But okay, luckily cool. we well, have like an accountant who worked out the details yeah. for us. Uh, Nick, tell me about your story. How'd you, how'd you get the folks around you to buy in? It's not that different than Don's actually with a, with a few different caveats, but, um, like I said, I went, I went, uh, that weekend, I started putting together a pro forma and running the numbers, mostly just to convince myself, like, is this doable? Is this viable? And I'm looking at it going, yeah. I mean, even with what I'm doing right now, I mean, my practice still had room to grow, but financially, you know, it should make sense. Fortunately, my, my group we have, which is part of the reason I joined them, uh, a relatively young leadership, uh, elected positions on there and they, and they sort of have a history of being aggressive for expansion. So I, I went to the, uh, to the, uh, what we call our executive committee. I went, I went, um, you know, the following week they were meeting and I, and I took my pro forma there and I, I explained my rationale and I said, you know, here's what I'm already doing, you know, case wise. Um, here's what I would require, you know, for staffing, equipment. Uh, you, we, we already had the, inf- I, we had the infrastructure in place for the imaging centers. So I figured I could piggyback on that rather than get a new standalone site. We, uh, one of the buildings, we own the building there. So I, I just worked in, you know, a rough build out cost to take sort of an old corner of the building we weren't really using. And I went through everything and, and I showed them the numbers and then they said, well, are you sure? And it looked really good. And they said, you know, are you, I think your reimbursement numbers are off. And I said, I said, no, no, this <laughs> is what, you know, this, this, this is what this pays. They said, no, you're showing us charges, not not payments. I said, I'm not. I, I was actually showing them this is the, this is the payments. So, because they, they weren't familiar with it, you know, and I don't blame them. Uh, the pushback that I get from that when you, when I show them tr- like collections is they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. but how much money do you spend on equipment, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of hard to estimate from the PAD cases, you know, like how much you're going to end up spending. It is. And, and you're always going to spend about twice as much as you might think you're going to you yeah. know, spend because then you're going to get okay. this difficult case, right? And you want to you want to get it done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, so what I, so what I did, uh, so I, I guess I sort of, like Don said, I, I sort of had their philosophical buy-in, but to get the financial uh, buy-in uh, in order to accomplish it, I sort of needed to, you know, we'll stick with Jerry Maguire theme. I needed to show them the money, you know? And so, <laughs> so uh, what I did was um, we had some of the space and we had a room we were using for varicose veins at this time. And so I, uh, and I didn't have a tech, but he was, uh, it was one of our IR techs who was working per diem, uh, at the hospital happened to be a part-time CAT scan tech with us. So I said, all right, you know, you come. So, so I pulled him, said, we're going to, you know, do some, 
you know, cases through this and we had some nurses. So I, uh, I, I found out you could demo the sea arms so that they'll actually bring you sea arms, you know, to demo for three or four days to evaluate, to buy it. So I found every vendor that exists, you know, for sea arms. <laughs> so I, so each week in a row was like, you know, I, I would do, okay, we're demoing GE, you know, this week. And then I give it two weeks and then right, we're going to demo Zeme this week and then give it a couple of weeks. And, and so that's what we did. And, and we, and, you know, meanwhile, we started, I started doing the first few cases with this and I, and I spaced it out and about, you know, three months later, you know, enough to get sort of Medicare uh, payment back. I had the actual dollars that we were, that we're doing. Plus I was showing what equipment I was spending and I went back to them. Uh, with all that plugged into my pro forma, it, it was pretty much right around what I had uh, originally planned. And they said, well, you did all your homework, you know, go for it. We're, we're all in. So that was where we, how it started. That's amazing. That's amazing. Same thing. How did you get your group to have the financial buy-in, Don? So the financial buy-in was difficult. We do, we also have imaging centers. So at least we have, uh, you know, a model for outside the hospital. So everybody understands that. Similar to Nick, where he, he was showing the numbers and they weren't believing it. You know, that's the billing, not the, you know, the reimbursement. So we actually, we have a guy who's, um, what is it called? Revenue cycle manager who basically that's his whole job. You know, he just tracks the dollars and presents it. So I sat down with him and we, we did up well. So the interesting thing was I, the performa is real, you know, it's real dollars. It was well worked out. Mm -hmm. But then it's making people believe those numbers are real is a separate step. So I, I basically used our uh, a revenue cycle guy to prove the numbers are real. And then mm -hmm. I know it seems complicated. Ran it by our accountant who also proved the numbers were real. And then, yeah. then you have enough believability by everybody in the group. Because otherwise it's just your word and numbers on a piece of paper. Yeah. So you do need some. I think if you're doing it yourself, you, you really do need somebody other than yourself. To say yes, this is real, unfortunately. Yeah. Neither of you have really mentioned your other IR partners yet in this stage of development. I noticed that. So at from conception to this point, was it all just you two? Yeah. So to that point, it really was just me. One of my older partners was interested, but he was also uh, reluctant and afraid to rock the boat in the group. More, I mean, more because he was, he's old, old, farther along in his career. Things are already good, you know, financially in the group. Um, so it's like, why, why change things? I think in his mindset, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it I was the, I was the youngest par partner at the time. I'm trying to think through this live. <laughs> no worries. You're like, hey, wait, why was it just me? Yes. Hmm, that's yeah. a good point. <laughs> yeah, really. Wait a second. I, it did require, you know, we sat down. I had a lot of sit downs and discussions with my other IR partners. And, mm -hmm. you know, I did have to get them on board. It wasn't just like, boom, IR is gung-ho and we're going to convince the diagnostics. It was like, I have to get my, sure. my IRs in, on board. And then once they're on board, I can get the rest of the group on board. So that, that's really, that was key because I couldn't have done it. You know, otherwise I, I would have had to leave the group, you know, without my partner. How about you, Nick? You had an interesting situation. You were the youngest too. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of old, older gentlemen IRs who uh, maybe weren't really familiar with below the knee work. Um, and that's something that you wanted to build in your OBL. How'd you get them 
How'd you get them on board? You know, it wasn't very difficult. Fortunately, I was the fourth that came in and and uh, two of the, the other three guys really uh, jumped on board right away, actually. Um, you know, and again, it was new, new and different uh, procedures and a little bit new for the management, you know, the clinical management and follow up, uh, you know, and fetal work and stuff like that. But fortunately, they are very, very uh, technically skilled. Um, so, you know, if anything, wire catheter skills, at least back then, you know, originally, uh, they've, they've got, you know, years and years of experience to go off of. And I was, you know, the, the young guy coming out. So honestly, it was a give and take on both ends. You know, I kind of say, this is kind of what we're doing here. This is what, you know, how we're going to cross this and whatever. But, you know, I, I, I wasn't afraid also to ask for their help a little bit, you know, with some things. So I, I was fortunate, um, really fortunate that, that the two of them jumped on board um, really early on because then we were very cohesive and we had kind of a shared vision of, uh, you know, where, where we were going to go with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I my clinic and stuff originally was kind of where we started from. So it was me initially, but as soon as we sort of knew we were going the OBL route and expanding, you know, clinic hours and, and going out and increasing our referrer outreach, uh, they were right there, right there with me. So... Um, and in large yeah. part, that that contributed to our success. Great. Yeah. Group culture, group support cannot be understated. You have to be in the right group for this to work, right? Totally. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some of the, some of the you know, naysayers might say, well, the hospitals are going to get mad and then they're going to make us lose our contracts. So what, what do you say? What did you do? I, I tell you, I mean, I mean for, for us, uh, I, that, that did come up. You know, it, it was yeah. a thing, but. You know, the other thing is I, we were building and growing IO at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, honestly, we were bringing more. Yeah, okay, let's put this to rewind. You know, when it came and there was no, really not, not much of a clinic, we were never really the provider bringing, you know, referring in to the hospital. Right. Okay. And then now, now that we were clinically managing these cases, whether it be IO or, or PAD, you know, work, um, we were still. Now, our name, my name, you know, my partner's name is tied to the procedure that's being ordered, you know, through the hospital. So in a lot of ways, the hospital was viewing us in a much more positive light because now you could, you know, when we first came, you couldn't find, you know, my partner's names as refers, right, to the hospital. But the hospitals look at this, you know, and the the managerial side of it, you know, and their CFOs and stuff, they look to see, you know, oncologists are her huge referrers right to the hospital because they they are names tied they're ordering all this stuff you know even you know even when you get down to like procedures and chest ports and biopsies it's attributed to them you know even though even though us and irs you know are performing it you know we're we're there just to perform the service you know in that setting so you know we became a referrer to the hospital and you know by the way there's still a fair amount of um, patients that you know we you know, for whatever reason we were doing in the hospital setting, you know, as, as you'll see with PAD patients, you know, you know, coexisting severe cardiac issues, sure. aortic stenosis, yeah. things like that. Those are still common there. So, you know, it, it was an initial discussion, but I think pretty quickly um, when we looked at our volume and, and I, and by the way, I made sure that, that I had that discussion um, with hospital administrators to show them okay. uh, what I was bringing. Yeah. And that also helped, I think. That's interesting. So you, you, um, rather than waiting till they found out about it. You were like, hey, we're going to do this. It's going to sound bad, but this is what it's going to mean for you. 
Yeah, we even worked it into as our our imaging contract with the hospital. We had certain goals, you know, okay. that you're supposed to, yeah, a pro, like improvement projects per year. Yeah. So I actually worked it in pretty early on into to be the improvement project so that they, because as part of that project, they were tracking the growth. So then they were excited, you know, to see that. Oh, that's really great. So you, you had buy-in from your diagnostic colleagues and from the hospital. Um, Don, anything to add about this subject? I love that. I just listened to Nick's stuff. I'm taking notes. Um, so we, we did have a clinic already. Uh, the clinic referrer thing, that was an interesting, small, like detailed problem that maybe a lot of practices don't know because we, we had the same thing. We already had a clinic, except instead of putting my name on procedures that I was taking to patients there for, they were still putting the, whoever referred the patient to me as the ordering mm. person, mm. even after years of having our own clinic. So yeah. Only, only one year ago, we changed that so that I'm now the referrer instead of whoever sent me the patient. So that, that was interesting. And I didn't even realize it was a problem until some point in, you know, somebody pointed it out. And then I was like, wow, that is an issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love the improvement Yeah, it's a huge idea. change the way the hospitals will see you um, yes. when your name's tied to all that. Huge. Yeah. Like if it was, you know, if you're a person who does total joints and the primary care doc is the referrer right. for everyone like yeah <laughs> I, they'd be like oh ortho does nothing here yeah yeah we're yeah. making see, all this money from the primary care yeah. <laughs> see other isn't specialists it, it? know this you know but <laughs> hey, coming from the radiology side you know we're, we're, we're used to not having that name on there so it's a, it's a it's a paradigm shift for us it is, it's really it a paradigm is. yeah um there was one other what was the question i was i was asking about um how do you basically I was asking in a more eloquent way, how do you not piss off the oh, hospitals yes. by creating an OBL? Yeah. Yes. So I had a maybe a little different perspective on it. So the the I think the main stress point in our hospital was call teams, call team use. And you know, there's been proposals over the years, you're gonna give us a second room. We only have one room to do all our cases in. You know, there's C T and ultrasound, but then one cat, one angio suite. There's eight angio suites that are shared by all the different specialists, but we get one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the pressure has been for so long, you know, we can't, well, we can only book three outpatients a day because we have that much inpatient work every day. And so we're, we're bottlenecked that, I mean, that was one of the reasons we wanted another center, but we'd been arguing for another angio suite for years. And, you know, you keep getting promises and essentially they would do the performer and they'd say, oh, well, you're only doing three cases a day. <laughs> and we're like, well, we only have one room. Self-fulfilling prophecy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's so weird that I don't know how to, maybe I was bad at explaining it. I, I don't know why they didn't understand that we really needed a second room. You just got to be better at the value-added committee. I think that's what it sounds like, Don. <laughs> exactly. You step up your, your game at I the do. back. <laughs> no, we had real, like, we had real sit-downs with admin. And we'd get the yeah. promise, oh, we're going to do it. And then four months would go by and they said, we did the, we did our pro forma and it doesn't work out. So oh, wow. I eventually I was like, well, we have two roads forward. We can try to get more angio suite time at the small hospital, or we can get our own angio suite. And that was also mm -hmm. one of the stepping points. Um, but where, where that comes in is the hospital was more concerned about overtime of staff than they were about getting us more time to do, take care of more patients more efficiently. So when they did come to us, my, my practice president was the CMO of our current hospital for uh, two years. And they did come to him and they said, well, can, would you, we know you're opening a center. Would, would you like to do this together? 
And it just came down to that discussion. Okay, so, you know, we've asked you to get a second Angio Suite for years. You didn't want to do it. Now you'd like to be involved in our our business adventure. Um, what what do you bring to the table? And that was the question. Like my 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 practice president just put it back in his lap. And this was the CEO. He just put it back in his lap and said, Well, what maybe, maybe it could work. What would you bring to this business adventure? And he said, Money. And we don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> so if if you're just bringing money and we already have money, then you're not bringing anything really to the table other than potentially bureaucracy. Yeah. And so we said, no, thanks. Maybe we can revisit this again in a few years. You hadn't shared that with me yet. That's really interesting. Yeah. I know that discussion well, uh, Don. So yeah. I think that's, that's similar. <laughs> and I think you touched on something, though, that's really important. It's like uh, this was inevitable to happen anyway because I can't get more than, you know, maybe two, maybe three, uh, you know, outpatient cases done in a day. And trust me, it's not because I'm slow at legs. I mean, at this point, I've gotten pretty fast at them. I mean, I'll be in the in the room, you know, working for cumulative one and a half uh, to two hours or something, you know, for the whole day. <laughs> um, and they just so in order to have sort of a good, um, in-depth, advanced PAD CLI practice, there's no way they could support the volume uh, anyway um, at the hospital setting. And I think at this point, they kind of realize that. But again, when you go back to that discussion, it's like, well, what do you bring? Well, uh, we can, we can help, uh, Hey, you know, and it's, it's like, well, you know, fortunately for OBL setup and, and outpatient vascular stuff, like the, the, uh, it's not nearly as expensive as it is to put like MRIs in and, and such. So for, for a, uh, a large private imaging group, the numbers actually look like relatively, you know, quote cheap, right? I mean, it relatively looks cheap compared to them that putting in a new office with multiple, you know, three T MRIs. That um that brings us to a really good point. I'm I'm sure at some some point during this journey, both of you maybe weren't getting the results you wanted, um, or didn't see that things were going the way that you wanted them to go either because of administrative hurdles or group buy-in or whatnot. And you probably thought about going off on your own and doing it by yourself, right? Am I right? Am I thinking yep. right? Okay. Yes. So what, what made you stick with your group? Yeah. You know, I, I, I had that moment, um, especially, uh, early on, you know, I was on a partnership track, you know, and it was, it was early and I could see kind of the trajectory things were going and I could see, Hey, uh, you know, I think I'm decent. I think I'm pretty decent at this, you know. Um, so I, I had those those uh, moments um, thinking about that, mainly, you know, a couple of years uh, into my in a partnership track, but early on in the OBL uh, setting. But very early on, it, it was the rest of my diagnostic partners. They didn't really fully like understand, you know, what the difference was between a clinical practice and what I was really doing, and um, you know, and they were like well, you know, your RVUs are lower, you know, and things like this. So that's really where that came from. I started to have some dissatisfaction with that. Um, you know, I actually would find myself coming in at like 5 a.m. on my clinic days and, and reading like a few body MRs to like pad my RVU numbers, uh, you know. And, um, uh, you know, I, that that didn't last very long until I was pretty, you know, uh, getting burned out uh, by doing this. But fortunately... Uh, you know, I brought I brought those concerns, you know, to to our committee and, and my group. Like I said, that it's, we have a relatively younger leadership and, and they're pretty forward thinking. 
And they were looking at the numbers and they're like, listen, I don't even think we're even calculating your RVs correctly, to be honest, because you're posting these numbers already, you know, and they said, you guys are, we know you guys work hard. We see you guys there when we get there and you're still there when we leave, like you're exempt from this. And and it, and it, it didn't actually take a lot of convincing. Also, I relied on a lot of our, you know, we have a pretty, um, uh, decent, um, amount of management and expertise, you know, financial, like our CFO and, and, uh, and we have some shared in-house billing coders and, 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 you know, so, so I found them to be a big resource, uh, for a lot of what I was doing. And so it also helped, helped us along, you know, as, as the, uh, as the practice grew and, um, you know, new opportunities, they became really helpful and indispensable for those type of projects. And I just thought to myself, you know, without having them, could I do it? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I could, um, but you know, long-term it's like, am I going to want to be, you know, on this, you know, 365 days a year, you know, I'm putting in and, and I, I still do, but I, I guess, I guess back then I thought that I wouldn't be working as much, but anyway, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is helpful. I can go away. I have my partners help, you know, help yeah. cover me. Um, we have a deeper bench, I guess is what, is what I'm saying, sure, which, sure. which, um, you know, and, and mainly, and, and also part of the reason I joined my group to begin with, and, and I tell the trainees when they come out, really, if you're looking towards private practice, make sure it's a group where everybody's kind of fair, fair owners, fair mm-hmm. splits, you know, you have some groups where it's like a few old guys, you know, on, on top, uh, that, you know, and, and there's like different tiers of yeah. ownership and partners yeah. and things like that. And I, I think that's what creates a lot of dissatisfaction in people to leave. And, and fortunately my group isn't, isn't run that way. So, and they work, they work really hard. And while I'm expand, you know, expanding our OBL and interventional side of the business, they've really aggressively expanded their diagnostic side of the business. So I've never had to look over and be like, oh, you guys are stagnant, you know, and I'm working. So uh, it's all about the group, though. Oh, absolutely. Nice. Don, how about you? Yeah, I definitely, I think, you know, we had that vision meeting. But before that that meeting, I'd explored, I met with some of the some of the companies that will help you build a lab and get you all set up. So I had those meetings, and I kind of had that in my mind as I can do this. I can do that if, if working within the group doesn't work. And then, so I, I did have that in mind. You know, I knew what I wanted, how I wanted to practice and I was going to do it either way. Um, but when the group bought in, I guess that kind of solidified it. But I, then I'd already had those discussions with some of those companies. And so then when the group was, when we sat down and had the real discussions of the finances, we were able to bring in those companies actually. And have a discussion of, hey, do we want to work with this company that's going to help us build a lab and do the whole thing for us? Or do we want to do it ourselves and try to use our own resources? And that was, that was a good six month decision too, Mm. which, you know, if you're Mm. by yourself, you can make that decision in in a day potentially, but it takes longer as a group. But that's the thing. Yeah. Everything in the group takes longer, especially if it's a democratic group. It's, it's real, but it's, I think it, you know. It's certainly a downside, but it's also, it can prevent you from making bad mistakes too. Totally. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to say about that topic? Uh, Either of you guys, uh, anything that I have missed about unforeseen obstacles early on in the development of your OBLs? I think the billing and coding thing. Okay. Yeah. So Nick was starting to allude to it with some, 
internal coders that they have in their group. So we, we have an outside group doing our billing and coding outside company, and they really lack expertise in procedures. And, you know, I knew I, I had data from like before I joined the group, because as soon as you're a partner, you get access to all of it. And we, we had in 2014, they did 154, uh, you know, saphenous vein closures in the clinic before I joined, maybe five of them were billed and collected. <laughs> so they just, they were paying money to close veins, but it, we, we, when we tried to figure out like what happened, essentially the way it's done is it's so automatic, you know, it's so automated, the billing company yeah, that they just pull the CPT code off the packs. And if your procedure is not like bundled with the CPT code, it mm -hmm. gets ignored. So simple <laughs> things like that. And, you know, and for, you know, you do a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis, it's like three CPT codes included, right? But when you do an SFA recan with tibial atherectomy and an iliac stent, none of that stuff's in the packs. So they were billing it as a diagnostic angio yep. because that's, that's the heading. They were like, aorta runoff, coded. Nailed it. Done. Exactly. $300. Uh, no, that's. That's a great point. We we had very I had the same experience uh, very early on, and this, that even goes into the RBU thing. Uh, you know, they're looking, going, well, mm -hmm. you did nine RBUs all day, and I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> because I don't understand. Because you know, I did like three SFAs, and like you know, and like yeah, you know, I'm like, I don't think that makes sense because the dollars are really tied to the RBU. It's you know, at some point. Uh, so yeah, they were doing the same, you know, billing it as a diagnostic, uh, angiogram. Uh, so you to look at that. Yeah. Cause, uh, cause the billing company for radiology groups, it's very straightforward. The CP, you know, I'm getting a CT chest non-contrast, right. And then they fill that CPT, but you know, um, in interventional and vascular, you know, we, we, we bill, there's components right to the, to the procedure. And, you know, you, you, you might build a diagnostic angio, but you got to get, you know, 37225, you know, you have to get all the other components that you did during the procedure. And so uh, what we found worked best was uh, uh, once I got my EMR, which is a whole nother hurdle, I guess we could talk about that too, because originally my, my EMR was- This a... might have to be a two-part <laughs> podcast, because I feel like we've like just scratched the surface about yeah. what I wanted to talk to you guys with. <laughs> but uh, go ahead, keep, please tell me more. Yeah, I mean, I mean, early on, my EMR was, was PowerScribe, you know, it was, it was uh, yeah. into the packs that yes. it was PowerScribe documenting. So uh, nothing like manually entering patient medications and- uh, <laughs> And uh, and vital signs, Same you know, experience. you're dictating. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so uh, finally, I, I I got an EMR, uh, which helped with that. And when we did that, we uh, we it had some ability to customize. So we gave the text the ability to uh, to pick the most common codes uh, for these procedures. So that was kind of our first line of defense. Was we finished the procedure, the tech knows what we did. They're going to check the boxes. Yeah, he or her checks the boxes and. That puts that goes into the encounter. Then we decide. So we started with that, and then we had the third party billing company would then bill out from there. We found things were still being missed because maybe if the tech didn't know, that might be supported by my documentation. So then we brought some. We we have some uh, coders billers in house. So we put together a little bit of a team, and even on the third party billing companies, and they have a team that's specific uh, to us. And we found that helped mm. capture pretty much pretty much everything that so we've kind of almost like three layers of defense. <laughs> That's it's amazing how much uh, we have to put so much work into 
seeing the patients, doing the clinical workup, doing the prior auth, getting the patient's schedule, doing the case. And then we have to do so much work on the back end to make sure we get paid. It's amazing. And I didn't know anything about that until I got out in practice. I don't know about you guys, but. Well, and there's no, I had no idea. And there's even a difficulty in, you know, you dictate your procedure and yeah. you don't realize how important every single word is in that report. I mean, we've done a lot of work with our billers now and coders that now I get back a report from six months ago and they're like, well, did you, did you inject the contrast with your catheter tip? W was it from the catheter that you had in the right groin or was it from the catheter you had from the tibial insertion? And I'll be like, six months ago, dude, I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, <laughs> you know, I'll just say angiogram perform from the right leg. I, you know, I didn't, I don't, I'm not saying which catheter is, is, I, I mean, you get the idea. So true. So it, true. It, so it can even be your error in, in the coding piece, which is unfortunate. Okay. Um, we have to wrap up this episode, but I really want to bring you guys back on for part two of this because there is, I feel like we just scratched the surface of what we need to talk about here. And I've already learned so much. Could be a 10 part, from, a 10 part series, maybe. 10 part series. Yeah. We'll do yeah. EMR next time. That's it. <laughs> um, but I'd love for you guys to tell me uh, where you are right now in your OBL journey. Nick, you're a bit farther along than both of us. So, uh, Don, why don't you start with telling us where you're at? Yeah. So we're we're in construction. We have a space that's about it's close to 10,000 square feet. It was an old plastic surgery office that we bought in. It's been framed and gutted. We're about two months from move in for the clinic. And then from doing cases, we're about four months out. Great. How about you, Nick? Uh, yeah. So as we stand today, we have, uh, you know, one just led to another. Every time we grew, we'd have uh, people on the outskirts, referrers on the outskirts, you know, wound care saying, uh, you know, and helps with having a marketing team. But, uh, you know, saying, hey. Maybe you can help us with these. I'm, I'm not so happy with the results we're getting. And then, uh, you know, they become happy with us and they're like, can you come out here? Can you open something here? So we've grown kind of based on that a little bit, uh, just by need sort of demand. Uh, so, so as we stand, uh, today, uh, we have, um, we have three OBLs and we have 11, uh, office locations. Uh, so. Uh, we, we moved into one, one of our three is standalone, uh, would be able to no longer in a, in this part of the imaging, you know, centers. Mm -hmm. Um, we're actually in the process of building out sort of my, the original and busiest kind of flagship one as a standalone center. Uh, that's hopefully, uh, this will be open, uh, early 2023, uh, like okay. first quarter there. We have, uh, eight. IRs uh, now, and we're 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 looking and, and hiring a, a ninth now, just due to growth. Um, we have four, uh, actually uh, going on five uh, vascular surgeons. So we we transitioned into the multi specialty uh, route a few years back. Um, it just kind of worked out that way. And you know, between the vascular surgeons and the IRs, we cover six different hospitals, and uh, and also. We cover in some way, shape, or form uh, three different wound care centers as well. Um, it's up to, I'm yeah. trained in uh, wound care as is one of my other IR partners and a few of the surgeons as well. We have four mid-level uh, providers broken for a, a, a bit uh, right now. So it's become sort of this bohemoth. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it was ever my original <laughs> plan, but you know, it's, uh, I'm very proud of where, where, it's, where it's come to be. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, uh, thank you both for uh, sharing the origin story with me um, of how you got to where you are. I'd love to, you know, do another episode where we kind of delve into the nitty gritty, you know, consultants, location, buying or renting, construction stuff, like all of all of that. But yeah, is there anything, uh, anything that I missed that you think our audience needs to know in the next two or three months? No, I think Nick, you need to you need to run like a program where you just bring IRs <laughs> out to learn. <laughs> I, I think one, one thing I'd like to say, you know, I, I think for trainees is the advice I, the advice I give them. If they think this is a route they want to go, and I think, it's, I think it's a great route and there's a lot of personal and professional satisfaction you can derive from this. I think too many trainees get hung up on looking, when you're looking and evaluating a group, I think too many get hung up on what are they, well, what are they currently doing there? You know, like, oh, I, I went to see them. Well, or how many legs are they doing? Are they doing Y90? Yeah. Are they not? You know, and, and I understand why people look at, look at things that way. But I think if you're the type of person and you think you want to go out and grow, you know, with a group and grow a practice like this, whether it be PAD or IO uh, or both, I think the real thing that you should be looking at is the group's mentality, the leadership, you know, the equality structure, how decisions are made, their history of aggressive expansion or not. I think those are the biggest things uh, as a trainee coming out that you want to look at if this is some direction you want to go, because I'm eternally grateful for my group and their support. Um, and I think it's just because I found my, I chose the right practice to do this in. You know, when I, when I left Penn out, out of fellowship, people were saying, you're crazy. What, what are they doing there now? I'm like, well, occasional angiogram. They're like, <laughs> I, I, you know, my attending said, you're going to be doing pick lines and reading mammograms mm. in six months. And I was like, well, yeah. maybe, you know, I hope not. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's one message I think, I think the trainees, you know, who might be listening to this, uh, I think should take away about evaluating the you know, potential uh, job opportunities. Amazing. Well, th thank you both for uh, being my guest today on this episode. I've learned quite a bit. Uh, looking forward to learning more from both of you, both per personally and professionally. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.